Uh, Father, we're so thankful. Uh, we have been fed well, uh, good food, but uh, we thank you for the the food of your word that we have been feasting on this weekend and, and really all three of these weekends. And uh, your word is uh, such a source of encouragement and help. Um, we recognize uh, the suffering and sin of the world and the struggles that even we face in this life and uh, how thankful we are that you don't leave us on our own. Uh, but you love us and walk with us and give us wisdom from your word uh, to help in those situations. So thank you for my brothers and sisters here. It is always a joy to be together. And I pray that you'll uh, bless our time together as we talk about Mr. Newton. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, John Newton's theology of friendship. Uh, Hebrews tells us, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, when the writer was writing that to the believers uh, in that context, he's probably thinking about people that were alive, you know, other people that had poured into it. But I think we can rightly apply that, as uh, Hebrews does in the previous chapters and, and elsewhere, to people that have gone before us. Uh, men and women of church history, and, and I don't know about you, um, I really appreciate spiritual heroes. Uh, there's, some, you know, when we were young, and you know, maybe it was Spider-Man or Superman or someone like that, and then you know, maybe some movie star or rock singer, you know, whatever you think. Right? We, we tend to be attracted to people that we say, "Man, I want to be like that." And uh, and I think when we become believers, hopefully, even though we might have you know, stars like that that we still like. What, what, what's really important is to have spiritual heroes. And so what I want to do is share with you uh, one of my spiritual heroes. And uh, I think we're in line with Hebrews to say we ought to imitate and strive to be like other men and women from church history that have walked with God in a worthy manner. And uh, again, you know, we can, we can read scripture, we can, we can talk about principles, but you know what it's like to, to see an actual person taking the word of God that we know and living it out in their life. It, 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 it's a, you know, it's a picture's worth a thousand words, right? It's like, oh, that's what it looks like. And so we need that. And Mr. Newton has been such a incredible source of encouragement to me. Um, I, I think in terms of church history outside of the, the apostles, he's the finest Christian I've ever known uh, from church history. And uh, again, lots of honorable mentions out there, but Newton just, Newton's my hero. So why Newton? Uh, I've spent the last two years uh, researching and writing a dissertation on John Newton. And uh, we were just talking a moment ago, I just finished school, so uh, it's done. And uh, I know some of you have been praying for me for that, and so I really appreciate that. I did my oral defense about two and a half weeks ago, and uh, Dr. Ewell, who you heard uh, this weekend, uh, he was on my advisory team and um, made sure I got the full experience. Uh, they don't call it an oral defense for no reason, but, uh, but charitable, gracious. Uh, these are brilliant and godly men that I've had a chance to sit under, so I'm very grateful for that. So, so let me introduce you to John Newton. Uh, how many of you know the name John Newton? Okay, what do you know about him? He wrote Amazing, Dra Amazing Grace. He was a... He was a slave trader, and that's about where our knowledge ends, right? Okay, no, it's, it's true. It's a, we all, we, most of us know Amazing Grace. Some of us know, yeah, wasn't he like a captain on a slave ship or something? And 
Uh, did you know that this January, January 1st, 2023, will be the 250th anniversary of the writing of the hymn Amazing Grace? And uh, we're, we're probably going to do some sort of presentation at our church. Um, there was something that happened over in England this summer in celebration of that. Uh, let me tell you the background of that hymn, just because just it's interesting. Uh, so what Newton did, uh, he was a pastor uh, for 43 years in England, uh, first in a town called Olney, which is north of Oxford, about an hour or so. And then he moved to London and had a second pastorate there, and he eventually concluded his ministry there in London. And um, when he first went to Olney, influenced by the hymn writer Isaac Watts, uh, Newton's mom had taught him, uh, Isaac Watts had written a hymn book for children. It was the first time anything like this was produced, so Newton's mom taught him these children's hymns from Isaac Watts when he was young. Newton had a wild childhood, went off, lived in ungodly ways. God saved him and converted him. He became a pastor. So when he uh, went into the town to become the first pastor, he really had a heart for children. And uh, so what he would do is he would have a midweek service. Uh, you think, think early Awana, okay? Um, he would have this midweek service. He would invite all the children. didn't matter if they were Church of England like Newton. It was dissenting churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian kids, they would all come together, and he would teach them a little Bible lesson. But knowing what you and I know about kids, their memories are great, and music has a way of locking truth in the mind, he would write a hymn to go with his Bible lesson. And that's why we have so many hymns of Newton, because he would write a hymn to go with every one of these children's Bible lessons. It's also why when you read his hymns, they're very simple, but they're very profound, because he's writing to children a lot of the time. Well, because he was Church of England, he couldn't just write hymns uh, for his church, because you had to use the official hymn book of the church. But if it was a special service, like New Year's Day, he could write his own hymn. So what he did in 1773, he wrote a, um, a hymn for New Year's Day to go with his sermon from First Chronicles 17 uh, about the life of David. And the hymn was called Faith's Review and Expectation, uh, thinking about God's faithfulness and his kindness to his word and uh, faith's review and expectation. And that's the hymn that you and I know today as Amazing Grace. The name got changed to from that original title to the title, just the first line of the hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. So that was the occasion. It was a New Year's Day sermon uh, for his, uh, New Year's Day song to go with his sermon uh, in, on that day. Interestingly enough, his good friend, the, the poet and hymn writer William Cooper, that afternoon, he wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Um, we think, wow, that's interesting. It was because his depression had returned. And he wrote that hymn in the throes of depression, and that night he tried to commit suicide. So all those things happened within 24 hours. So anyway, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so who's Newton, and why should we care? There he is, Mr. Newton, looking very 18th century-ish. Um, 18th century English pastor and hymn writer, author of Amazing Grace, former slave ship captain, spiritual mentor of William Wilberforce. Do you know who Wilberforce was? Yeah. What, what, what did he do? Yeah. Yeah. What did he do? Uh, the, the man in the back. Yes. He did. Yes. He was the the par, the member of parliament who helped to bring the slave trade to be illegal in the Church of England and eventually uh, outlawed slavery. And what's interesting was Newton was his mentor. 
uh, he went to Newton and said he had had a Wilberforce had had a spiritual revival, and he thought, you know what, I should go into ministry. And Newton said, no, we need a Christian parliament. We need someone with a godly influence in our government. And so he encouraged him in that. Of course, Newton's background was in the slave trade, so so he's he's like, man, we, we need to get rid of this thing. We, this is not good, even though it was readily accepted um, all over uh, Europe. And um, it's interesting, Newton died in 1807. Uh, he got to see the vote that abolished uh, the slave trade in Parliament before he died. So that's really interesting. Okay, um, he was the pastor of William Cooper, friend of George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley. So to give you some historical, I, I didn't do well in history, so I have to really study this stuff. Um, so other guys that are on the planet, uh, people that were friends of Newton, Whitfield, who was a mentor to him, John and Charles Wesley, those, those brothers started what we know as the Methodist Church in that day, uh, skilled and gifted pastoral counselor. Uh, the, Jonathan Aitken is his biographer. Uh, he wrote this. He was the leading evangelical commentator on religious subjects in Britain in the 18th century, which is amazing. Uh, that's, that's pretty profound, considering that Whitfield and the Wesley brothers were running around in that day as well. And uh, J.I. Packer, you guys know Packer, wrote this. He was perhaps the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. Newton was an incredible pastoral counselor. He was a biblical counselor. But because he didn't, you know, he didn't have modern media, you know, emails, text messaging, the main way he counseled was by writing letters back and forth to people. We have over a thousand of his letters, and those letters, uh, I read them just devotionally. You know, you got like some little devotional you read in the morning. You can get a little copy of Newton's letters and read them, and it's like reading a devotional. Um, so I've got some recommendations. If you're like, hey, this is interesting, I want to do this. There's some books at the end. Um, that might be of help to you if you would like to get to know Mr. Newton as well. So why should we study him on friendship? There's lots of things I, want, I could talk to you about about Newton that relates to counseling. But the, the one thing I thought would be helpful for you guys, and you can tell me at the end of it if it was successful or not, uh, is Newton on friendship. I think his view of friendship is exemplary. And the reason was he took the same doctrines that we believe in Scripture and he translated that into an actual life of godly friendship with other people. And I don't know about you, I think, I think we can all use help when it comes to being a biblical friend. You know, if we're going to have a, a Cowboys watch party or an A&M party or we're going to get together and go bow hunting or, and you ladies, you do what ladies do, whatever that is. Um, but we're good at that, right? We, we, can, we can hang out around hobbies and stuff like that. But what does it mean to be a biblical friend? What does it mean to get together and get beyond hobbies and sports and, and actually talk about the things of God to one another? And, and if we're honest, that, that can be a little awkward at times, right? It, it, it's not as natural as just talking about hobbies for many of us. So I think Newton helps us with that. So here's some thoughts. Um, his friendships were numerous and diverse. Uh, he had friends. He was friends with the poor lace makers of Olney and members of parliament like uh, uh, William Wilberforce. He valued friendships. As I mentioned, he wrote over a thousand letters. He visited families every afternoon in his church for pastoral care. His home was usually full of visitors. One of his biographers wrote this, his friendly and hospitable home was a place to which the troubled and the tempted resorted. This is, people wanted to go to Mr. Newton's house if they were struggling. I thought, man, what a, what a challenge, right? We say, are our homes like that? Are our churches like that? Uh, he organized a Bible study for kids. I mentioned that. Um, he was likely the most sought-after spiritual advisor in the 18th century. 
and he was William Cooper's closest friend. He cared for Cooper for over 30 years through three major seasons of depression and multiple suicide attempts. One of the chapters in my dissertation, I talk about his relationship with Cooper. Really, really fascinating. In fact, in fact, you want to hear cool? Um, I got to go to England and photograph a whole bunch of letters that Newton wrote to Cooper. Uh, a team in our church transcribed them. And uh, so I got to do some kind of original research on that relationship. Really, really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm a pastor at heart, but I got a little bit of nerd in me. And uh, it was it was very nerdy and awesome. So and uh, and he had an unusually happy marriage that modeled Christian love and friendship. And I'll tell you about his relationship with Polly, his wife, here in a little bit. So let's let's just kind of anchor our thoughts around six distinctives of Christian friendship. You'll notice that I gave you a pretty substantial amount of notes there. Uh, The good news, we're not going to read all of that. We're not going to talk about all of that. But the value of Newton is reading how he says things. You're going to read something and go, I believe the same thing as what he believes. I could never say it like that. At least that's how I feel. (laughs) Some of you, I'm sure, could. Um, but so I've put a lot of examples in your notes of just how he says things and his perspective. Um, again, I'm not going to bore you by reading all of them, but I wanted to give you a lot of examples because it'll feed your soul. And I think it helps us to know as we think about friendship, sometimes it's like we know the right doctrine and we might know where we want our friend who's maybe struggling. We know where we want to get them to, but it's like, how do you get them from here to here? How do you take the doctrine that you know and, and minister to it in a way, minister to somebody in a way that is helpful and encouraging? And I think Newton does that in, in an exemplary way. So let's talk about six distinctives of his Christian friendship. And again, we're not going to talk about every example, every quote, but you have some, some stuff there. The, the first thing I want you to see, and this is no surprise because this is the advanced track, is theology drives everything, doesn't it? Theology drives what you choose to eat. It drives what you entertain yourself with. It it drives your free time and how you parent and how you respond in traffic and and a thousand other things. And you know that. But I want you to think about how theology drives friendship. And this is where Newton wasn't like, you know, doctrinally orthodox and then he was like everybody else in his friendship. He actually let what he believed shaped how he viewed other people and how he cared for them. So let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, Specifically, Newton helps us with a theology of people. How he viewed people really changed and influenced how he did friendship. Newton wrote this, to administer any comfort to his children, meaning God's children, is the greatest honor and pleasure I can receive in this life. Just, Just stop right there for a minute. I can tell you, based on the research, that he lived that. That wasn't just like, you know, a t-shirt logo. Um, What would you say? The greatest honor and pleasure in my life is blank. And if I'm honest with you, maybe it's not always caring for God's people or having biblical friendships or whatever. And, And Newton really, really loved people. And he loved bringing comfort and encouragement to the people of God. Uh, One of his biographers, who was actually a friend of his, uh, wrote this. He did not generally aim at accuracy in the composition of his sermons. So this is not necessarily like the best preacher in the day. Um, 
nor was his address nor nor at any address in the delivery of them his utterance was far from clear his attitude sometimes ungraceful but he possessed so much affection for his people and so much zeal for their best interests that the defect of his manner was of little consideration with his constant hearers at the same time his capacity and habit of entering into their trials and experience gave him the highest interest to his ministry among them he loved people well. And that's interesting. So George Whitfield's running around. John Wesley's running around. Lots of great preachers. People would go listen to Newton rather than these other guys, not because Newton was the best preacher, but he was so sincere and so affectionate for the people uh, as he ministered to them. So a theology of people. A theology of suffering. And again, I'm not going to bore you with all this. Uh, I, I gave you a few more notes on his theology of suffering because that's mainly what I wrote on. And here's, here's, here's the dissertation in a nutshell. Newton's theology of suffering influenced how he counseled people. And I, I, to this day, it's like, oh, Lord, help me to be like that. Uh, he had an ability of caring for people in their suffering. And you go, how does he say that? How does he do that so effectively? It was his theology. It was his theology driving all that. So, for example, let me just give you a, just a couple of tastes of this. Again, we'll just kind of jump around here. Um, he really viewed God's sovereignty as the, the, the staple doctrine of his theology of suffering. L- l- just listen to this. Um, he says, um, afflictions spring not of the ground, but are fruits and tokens of divine love no less than his comforts. And there is a need be whenever for a season he is in heaviness. Now, now you've got to get past 18th century language here. I know it's after lunch. So, but, but if you can kind of just slug your way through the old language, you're already saying, he said, suffering doesn't just happen. It's, it's a love token from a heavenly father who aims to do good in your life. It's like, of course it is. That's what the Bible says. Why don't I react like that? When I'm meeting to a suffer, meeting with a suffering person, can I bring that perspective to that person as well? Um, Though he put forth his hand, talking about God, though he put forth his hand and seemed to threaten our dearest comforts, yet when we remember that it's his hand and we consider that it's his design and his love and his wisdom and his power, we cannot refuse to trust him. R.C. Sproul talked about the invisible hand of God's providence. And what Newton is saying is, if we believe that doctrine of sovereignty and providence, let's add the rest of it. It's his hand. His love, his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his intention to to grow us. That's all coming through his hand. And and we need to remember that in suffering. Uh, He talks about uh, Christology, how how Jesus helps those who are suffering. I love this quote. It is a comfortable consideration that he with whom we have to do, our great high priest, who once put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself and now ever appears in the presence of God for us is not only possessed with sovereign authority and infinite power, but he wears our very nature and he feels and exercises in the highest degree those tendernesses and commiserations which I conceive are essential to humanity in its perfect state. Let, let me translate 18th century for you. Let's remember that Jesus is not only God and he sits at the right hand of God and he's our great high priest, but he was also fully human. 
And he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, so he feels for us in our weaknesses and our struggles and, and, and commiserates with us. And therefore, we have somebody who's sympathetic and, and understanding and caring to us in our day of trouble. Uh, not just God who can help us, but fully man who can relate to us. And, uh, but, but just, I mean, you, you already know that doctrine. You already knew that. But hear how he says it. And it's how he says things that are, is so winsome and attractive. And even when he's calling people out to repentance, he does it in a way that's gentle and effective. Uh, he talks about some ways that God redeems suffering. Uh, he talks about weaning us off the world. He, he talks about revealing hidden sins. Let, let me, I'll read one of these. Again, not all of them. I'll just read a few of these. Here's one of my favorites. L- listen to this. Afflictions do us good likewise as they make us more acquainted with what is in our own hearts and thereby promote humiliation and self-abasement, uh, repentance, right? L- listen to the analogy, okay? There are abominations which, like nests of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect that they are there till the rod of affliction rouses them. Then they hiss and show their venom. This discovery is indeed very distressing. Of course it is, Mr. Newton. You're saying you have snakes in our hearts. Of course. Yet, till it is made, we are prone to think ourselves much less vile than we really are and cannot so heartily abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. Isn't that great? You'll be, you'll be going to bed tonight and you'll be laying your head in the pillow and rehearsing the day and, and you'll think, that's right, I got snakes in my heart. And uh, when God brings suffering into my life, it's like a rod rousing the snakes. And now they hiss and they show their venom. And, and that's, that's not God condemning us. It's a rescue operation, right? Because he's drawing us to see that and go, ah, I got snakes. And then we can repent and, uh, and see our need for his grace all the more. So just stuff like that. It's, it's just amazing. Um, demonstrate our, our, our uh, insufficiency. Uh, again, I'll just... I'm not going to read all these, but just the Lord permits us to feel our weakness, that we may be sensible of it. I love this. For though we are ready in words to confess that we are weak, we do not so properly know it till that secret, though unallowed dependence we have upon some strength in ourselves is brought to the trial and fails us. So what is he saying? He's saying we'd all say we're weak. We all we would all say we need Christ. But we don't really believe it like we should Till God comes by through affliction and he kicks out that thing that we're leaning on instead of Christ. And then we really know it. Listen to this analogy. This is great. To be humble and like a little child afraid of taking a step alone and so conscious of snares and dangers around us as to cry to him continually to hold us up that we may be safe is the sure and fallible only secret of walking closely with him. You ever been to Central Market? You got some mom and, she, and, and she's towing a little two-year-old and the two-year-old walks in Central Market and she's like, oh, wow. And what does she do to mom? Right? I'm hanging on to mom, right? Because this is you know scary place and there's people and stuff and noises and, right? And that, that's what Newton's saying. That that's what affliction does is, is, it, is it shows us our weakness and our need to really lean on Christ more for safety. And uh, anyway, you get the idea. So there's some good stuff here. I mentioned the love tokens, right? Uh, The need be of trials. We suffer less than our sins deserve. 
Uh, anyway, you, you get the idea. Um, but, but his theology of suffering really shaped how he cared for people. And I think there's some good perspectives there we can learn from. So that's the first one, right? Theology drives everything, including friendship. How we view people, how we view suffering, how we view our trials. All of that helps us to be a better friend. And, and you know, we can flip that around. How, how we do friendship really reveals what we ultimately believe, doesn't it? If, uh, if, I'm, if I'm talking to a friend in suffering and my encouragement is no more profound than a Hallmark greeting card, well, that so, says something about what I really believe, doesn't it? So good, good stuff here to consider. Second thing, second principle, theology, uh, principles of, of friendship from Newton. Understanding people is essential to friendship. Um, Newton admitted that his favorite subject of study was what he called anatomy. That was his term for the study of the human heart. Um, you can't know people if you're not around them. Uh, Newton wrote this. I was their teacher, right? He's the pastor from the pulpit, but I taught them chiefly, but what I first learned from them in the course of the week when I visited and conversed with them from house to house. Indeed, I learned more from them than from all my great folios and quartos, meaning his books. In their artless, simple talk, I saw more of the workings of the heart, the power of grace, and the devices of Satan than any books could show me. You can't know people and care for them well if you're not around people. And um, we believe in the church, right? This is what the church does and is. But Newton says when you're around people, pay attention to them. Study them. We, we, we learn from our books and ultimately from the Bible, authoritatively, who people are and why they do what they do. But then Newton says, now pay attention to people and watch how that gets played out in actual life. And that's going to help you to be a better friend. So he says, when you're with people, observe them, right? For six weeks, I have had the occasion to spend several hours almost every day with the sick and dying. And those scenes, Newton goes on to say, uh, taught him and helped him uh, to care for people. So um, observe people, observe people in order to better understand them. And that will help you to be another friend. He gives us two areas like, okay, I'm observing people. What am I supposed to look for? He gives us two specific areas. Note the different stages of maturity that they're in. So he, he talks here about uh, you will find advantage uh, not only from the wise, but from the weak of the flock, right? You know, you're noticing mature people and immature people. Uh, he says, you're going to see people like this, uh, some people in a backsliding state, some under temptation, some walking in darkness, some rejoicing. But the point is you see and you learn from people. And then the second thing there is you compare what you're seeing to scripture. And what that does is, is it takes what God tells us authoritatively in his word and it gives us a picture of what that actually looks like. And you guys know in counseling, uh, how, how many of you are like actively counseling right now? You're actively counseling. Okay. Do you remember the first time you took a class like Fundamentals and you first read a counseling book and that picture was sort of forming in your mind? Okay, I can sort of see how this might work, right? You, got, you remember that? Compare that to what you know now. <laughs> oh, I had no idea what I was getting, right? And that's what, Newton, that's what Newton is saying, is there's a difference between reading it in the Bible, reading it in a J. Adams book, and actually doing it. And the way you get better at it is experience and observation. And uh, Newton would say, you know, we, we, really, we really don't know things truly until we've had to put them into action in life. 
So understanding people is essential to friendship. Let's let's observe and pay attention. And and um, you know what's funny? I read, reading all this stuff again. We we could we could summarize this by you know, be the church, right? Build relationships, love each other, listen to one another, be around, pay attention, care, and a lot of this will become uh, clear. Number three. Uh, some principles of friendship from Newton. Affliction is valuable, especially to friendship. Affliction is value, especially to friendship. Experiencing and responding to suffering well makes you a more effective friend. Um, we know this because suffering is God's favorite vehicle to make us more like Christ. James says that, Peter says that, the Psalms say that, the whole Bible says that. And, uh, but I want you to think how, well, well, think about this. It may be that your suffering is primarily about making you a better friend. Think about that. And certainly it, it benefits our, 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 ourselves too. But remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1? He says, uh, God comforted you in your suffering. Why? So you can comfort other people with that same comfort that you receive from him. So, so it may be that God's plan is, you know, I'm going to bring some suffering into your life, and that's going to help you, but it's really going to help you to be a friend and a comfort to somebody else. And that's what Newton is getting at here. The suffering that God ordains for us qualifies us and shapes us and builds us into a better friend. I'll give you some examples here. He says, afflictions squelch pride and self-sufficiency. Um, I don't know about you, but I think God's favorite way of making us humble is suffering. And uh, I confess, especially in my early days of being a Christian, um, you know, you're, you're you hear about somebody who's suffering, they're going through a hard time, and you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. And and then after a while, it's like, um, I mean, just can we just kind of you know do what the Bible says and get on? And and it's arrogant. You know, it's uncaring, it's unkind, because I hadn't experienced a whole lot of suffering at that point in my life. And then you go through things, and you walk alongside people that do, and you go, you know what? That's hard. And God is patient with us, and, and we ought to be patient with other people. So, especially squelching pride. Um, he talks here about how affliction gives an alarm to the soul. It helps us quicken to prayer, makes us feel our emptiness, and it preserves us from the enemy's net so that we're, we're better qualified there. He says afflictions help develop sympathy for other believers. By our own suffering, we learn likewise, as the Lord sanctifies them, to sympathize with the afflicted. That's 2 Corinthians 1. To comfort them from the experiences we have had of the Lord's goodness. They also create competence in caring for others. But listen to this. The doctrinal parts of our message are in some degree familiar to us. But what gives a savor, a fullness, an energy, and a variety to our ministries is the result of many painful conflicts and exercises which we pass through in our private life, combined with the proofs we receive. And as we go along of the Lord's compassion and mercies under all the perverseness and folly we are conscious of in our shells. Listen to this. It is only in the school of experience that we can acquire the tongue of the learned and know how to speak a word in season to those who are weary. So good. Um, now, you probably noticed that in the 18th century, they had no such thing as run-on sentences. 
They didn't have third grade teachers saying, now break that up, Johnny, that's way too long, right? So just, you got to kind of stay with him because he's like, the clause, you English people, the clause structure reading these guys is overwhelming. But if you can stay with it, it's really quite profound. One, one last one. Afflictions help us practice what we preach. Listen to this. Take care that you do not catch an angry spirit yourself while you aim to suppress it in others. For this will spoil all, and you'll exhort and advise and weep in vain. May you rather be an example and pattern to the flock. And in this view, be not surprised if you yourself meet with some hard usage, meaning some trial, rather than rejoice in that, because you will thereby have an opportunity to exemplify your own rules and to convince your people that what you recommend to them, you do not speak by rote, but from the experience of your heart. It's a huge difference, right? When we're giving advice to somebody out of the experience of walking through that principle and that advice and finding God faithful, than if we're just lobbing off Bible bombs at people saying, you know, take two John 3.16s or two Roman 8.28s and call me in the morning. Um, Newton says it is a grace when God allows us to live out our own advice. Okay, number four. The character, Christ-like character is the backbone of friendship. Christ-like character is the backbone of friendship. Listen, uh, these are some biographers that wrote about Newton. He was the most perfect instance of the spirit and temper of Christianity I ever knew. Mr. N could live no longer than he could love. Josiah Bull, who was the grandson of a, a friend of Newton's, it was his goodness rather than his greatness that rendered him so especially attractive. The abundance of the grace of God was in him. Some men excel in one virtue more than other, but Mr. Newton's character was beautiful in its entireness. It rested on, it rested on a solid foundation, the initial Christian grace of humility. And this grace, uh, of this grace, he was a most striking example. Now, now Newton, Newton was not perfect. I, and, and I can tell you, I, anyway, he said it, and, and I've read enough of him to tell you. But you say, why was Newton like this? Why was he like this? Listen, listen again to his biographer. Mr. Newton never for a moment forgot that by the grace of God, he was what he was. Henceforth, the frequent allusion to his former miserable and guilty state in his diary, in his letters, his converse, his preaching. No day passed without the mingled feelings of self-abasement and gratitude, which his circumstances awakened. Let me, again, let me translate that. He was so overwhelmed by his guilt, his involvement, not just in the slave trade, but just the fact that he, he grew up in a Christian home his mom taught him the catechism, and, uh, and he, he departed from that and walked in sin through many years into his 20s before he was converted. And um, he just never got over the fact that he was a sinner saved by grace. He's never got over that. And if you read his, his diaries, his letters, and all the stuff that's there, it's not just, I mean, like, that was on his mind all the time. Do you, you, you've probably heard his last words. Uh, there was a, a friend named William J. who went to see him. This was... 1807, he's about ready to die, and um, he had lost his eyesight, and um, so William J. goes to see him, and, you know, how are you doing, Mr. Newton? You know, he can't see, and, and he's, he's getting close, and Newton says, um, my eyesight is almost gone, and there's a lot of things I can't remember, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's, that's what life's all about, guys. Um, and, and he lived under the weight of those two realities, and that kept him humble and dependent on God in that. 
And humility was really the mark of how you related to people. It, it, it showed up in sympathy. I feel for you in the same way as I feel for myself, he wrote. I bear friend, uh, uh, the same way you feel for yourself. I bear a friendly sympathy in your late, sharp, and sudden trial. And I will mourn with that part of you which mourns. But at the same time, I rejoice in the proof you have and which you give that the Lord, with, is with, the Lord of truth is with you. You see that? I'm sympathetic to you. I feel for you. But I'm confident that the Lord's with you and, and he's walking with you. And I can see it. And he just puts that together in language. Um, he talks about uh, coming alongside as a fellow sufferer. This is, this is the guy that everybody wants to talk to. And there are thousands of people writing him. And he's, he's, he's um, published his autobiography, which gave great uh, publicity to his little ministry in Olney. And, um, and yet he, he, he just he related to people like he was the chief of sinners. And, uh, and showed sympathy as a fellow sufferer. He never talked down to people. It was always coming alongside. And I think that's a good example to follow. He also was willing to, to, be, to disclose his own trials. Now, this is the 18th century. This is a Church of England minister. These are guys that would walk around. Uh, whenever they went around, they had a robe. And they had the wigs. And they, you know, kind of, you know, prominent. Everybody kind of stood in awe of them. You know what Newton would do? He ditched all that. He'd walk around in his old sailor's coat. You know, I, I think of some like, you know, prominent theologian or whatever, and uh, maybe he was in the military, and he's walking around in his old bomber jacket or something like that. You know, he's, he's just one of the guys. And uh, the, the one, one occasion, there was, he met some child, and, and he made a little paper boat for him and taught him a little sailor jingle. And yeah, that was Newton. I, I'm, he's like that, that, I picture him as like that, that grandfather that was the life of the party that all the grandkids flock to see at Thanksgiving time. You know, he just had that personality. He was so, you know, he's like, he's larger than life in terms of his experiences, but he's just this down-to-earth, humble, godly guy that everybody wanted to talk to. And I think part of that was he was willing to, to share his own struggles. Okay. Number five, I think Newton is, is a reminder that loving people at all times is the action of friendship. Loving people at all times is the action of friendship. That is Mr. William Cooper. Uh, Cooper came from a very prominent family. Uh, well, let me ask you this. What do you know about Cooper? Because Cooper? This, this might be more interesting. What do you know about Cooper? He was a poet? Hymn writer. Hymn writer? Depression. Depression. Yeah, he went through seasons of depression. I know, that's about it, right? Okay. So you're, you're absolutely right. He was raised in a very prominent, well-to-do family. Uh, he actually went to law school and uh, got what was the equivalent of his law degree in that day. And uh, in fact, sometimes when you read William Cooper, it'll say William Cooper E.S.Q. Esquire, right? Which is, you know, that's what they refer to lawyers even today. And uh, sometimes you'll, you'll hear William Cooper of the Inner Temple. I don't know if you've ever read that anywhere. You say, what's the Inner Temple? Well, in England in that day, if you were a lawyer, you ha in order to, be, to practice law, you had to become a member of a prominent law society. And so part of the education of getting that law degree involved becoming a member of this society. So the society that he joined was called the Inner Temple. So I, it's like, what's the Inner Temple? It was just a, a law society, uh, almost like a fraternity for, for law students, if you will. But, but it was required in the Church of England that you belong to one of these to practice law. Anyway, so trained as a lawyer, brilliant, absolutely brilliant with languages and hymns and poetry. And um, 
but he would go through these seasons of depression. He had several of these seasons. One of them, um, actually, he ended up in an insane asylum. He had received an appointment to have a prominent sort of secretarial role in, uh, in Parliament itself. And, um, and he was so overwhelmed by going before some of the magistrates to do the interview for the job that uh, he went out and tried to commit suicide like three times. He was just so overwhelmed by it. And uh, his family said, man, we've got to do something. So they sent him to this, you know, we would call it today a hospital. Back in those days, they called it an, an, a sane asylum. And uh, this, this facility was run by a Christian man who was caring for these sort of afflicted people. And, um, and this man led Cooper to the Lord. And he became a Christian in the insane asylum. He was there for about a year. And then he came out and he went to live with a family and um, what, they sort of adopted him as their, I mean, he's, he's in his young adult years, he's in his early 20s by now, but they kind of adopted him as their own uh, young adult son. And then the husband in this family was tragically killed. And it just so happened that Mr. Newton was in the area and he heard, hey, this, this family just lost their husband, they lost their dad. So he just went by, because he loves people, to, to just pray with them and encourage them. And that's where he met Cooper for the first time. And they became friends and, and so much so that the widow... Uh, sort of his adopted mom, and uh, and Cooper uh, became such good friends with, with Newton that they convinced him to move to Olney, and they became Newton's neighbors in Olney. And from that point on, Newton and uh, Cooper were friends. They wrote hymns together. They wrote poetry together. They did ministry together. And then, as I mentioned, on January 1st, uh, 1773, the afternoon, uh, Cooper's depression returned. He wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. And then that night, he tried to commit suicide. It's really interesting. Middle of the night, and he had this dream. He had this, this, this dream, or maybe it was more of like a hallucination. We don't know. But he dreamed that God was calling him to sacrifice himself to God the way Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac. And he attempted suicide, and thankfully, uh, again, this, his adopted mother and, and, and Newton heard about it, and they came and rescued him and kept him from bleeding out. He had tried to uh, cut himself, and uh, so they, they they intervened, and that spared his life, and uh, and so they're they're caring for him, trying to, what's going on, and he just had this deep darkness, and then about a month later, he had a second dream, supposedly, where God says, since you didn't obey my command to offer your life, I am banishing you from heaven forever, and and from that day on, he never went back to church, he never prayed, he never read his Bible, he never did any sort of ministry. He was done with Christianity, and he died in that state. Um, Newton was his friend and counseled him and cared for him for the next 30 years of that depression. Um, Cooper functioned, right? He, he translated two of Homer's work from Greek into English. Uh, he um, continued to write secular poetry. And what's interesting is um, people would ask about Christianity. He would defend the Christianity. He would defend the Trinity. He would defend justification by faith. He just thought it applied to everybody else except himself. And I bet some of you have met people like that. You know, you've met people that feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin or they've, they've, they've done something so bad. It's like, oh yeah, the gospel's good for you. It just doesn't apply to me. And I've read hundreds of Newton's letters and Cooper's letters back and forth. And it, it's really weird. It's like he believed it. For everybody else, but he didn't believe it applied to himself because he was hanging on to the validity of that hallucinatory dream that he had. 
So that's, that's a bit of, of Cooper's biography. And, and Newton, again, for over 30 years, Newton was faithful to care for him, walk with him, encourage him, point him to the truth. A friend loves when it's convenient, right? That's what the proverb says. A friend loves at all times. And Cooper lived that. Um, I think most of us are eager to be a friend, even in a hard situation for a little while. But to walk a road like that for over three decades uh, is very hard and, and takes the grace of God. Interesting, I've, I've read the last, the, the last letters that we have from Cooper to Newton and the last letter that Newton wrote to Cooper. They wrote hundreds of letters to each other. And um, Cooper would always call Newton in his letters, my dear friend, my dear friend, my dear friend. That's always how he signed off, my dear friend. The last... The, the, about the last four years of their life, four or five years of their life, Cooper stopped writing to, to Newton. He just stopped responding. And, uh, and then right before the end of his life, Cooper wrote him again. And the last two letters, he does not address him as my dear friend. Um, he addresses him very formally. And in fact, the last letter from Cooper to Newton, he, he writes, Adieu, dear sir. Very formal who in the former days I considered a friend. And yet Newton, even when Cooper kind of grew cold in his friendship, Newton continued with tenderness and encouragement. And even to that last, that last letter, calling him to believe the gospel and, and to trust the sufficiency of Christ. Um, so that's one example. Another one is his care for his wife, Polly. Her name was Mary but uh, he, they affection, he affectionately called her Polly, kind of a nickname. Uh, they met as teenagers. And um, Newton writes in his, in his autobiography, the first, when, when he met her, she was like 13 and he was like 17. Almost sounds like a song, right? Uh, what, what was the movie? That, uh, you are 16, I am 17. Anyway, um, anyway but um, does that sound of music? Yeah, okay. Whoa, where did that come from? Um, so, uh, but, but Newton writes, from the first time I met this girl... Keith paraphrase, I fell head over heels in love with her. And through all of his debauchery and sin and wickedness, uh, he got press ganged into the Navy. He actually abandoned his company. He was publicly flogged and deranked in the midst of all the sailors. Um, he, he, in a weird sort of twist of God's providence, he was in the slave trade industry after he got out of the Navy. And uh, his boss that he was working with had a mistress, and this mistress didn't like Newton. And the boss left, and the mistress put Newton into slavery. He lived in a cage uh, on, the, uh, on the west coast of Africa. Um, and even the slaves of Africa were looking at Newton going, we need to help this guy. They would bring him food and water because he almost died. And uh, so through many dangers, toils, and snares. That's not a line, guys. That was his life. Um, and uh, so, so eventually he met and married, uh, well, he met her as a teenager, uh, later on as a, maybe an almost Christian or maybe new Christian, it's hard to tell where his conversion happens, he, they married, and, um, and then Newton had a seizure, and uh, that seizure is what ended his seagoing career, and he became a surveyor of tides in Liverpool and eventually went into ministry, but the day he had that seizure... Polly kind of spiraled down into this weird sort of anxiety, medical something, and she lived with chronic pain for the next, well, really for the rest of her life, and they, they, they were married over 40 years. 
Um, so he spent over four decades ministering to and loving and walking alongside his wife in her chronic illness. Guys, if, if you're walking with somebody with a chronic illness, if you have a chronic illness, um, read the letters between Newton and Polly. And they're readily available. Uh, I've got them mentioned in the footnotes there, or in the endnotes. Um, amazing, absolutely amazing. Just what does it look like to walk alongside somebody with a chronic illness. She eventually developed breast cancer. And uh, c- can you imagine going through cancer in a day and age where they didn't have modern pain management? Um, and uh, and, sh- and she, she eventually died of breast cancer. So um, it's interesting. One of the things Newton said throughout all those decades is he, he called Polly uh, my great idol. And he wrote and said, let us not idolize our relationship with one another. And he, he viewed Polly's illness as God's kindness to keep him from loving and being attached to her more than he should. Whew. <laughs> That's, I'm telling you, it's, it's, uh, this is advanced Christianity here, guys. Um, but don't we need that? Um, even in a very, they had a wonderful, in fact, um, Newton published, after she died, he, he published his love letters. And in you know, 18th century proper Britain and the Church of England, you just didn't talk about stuff like that. And he got, he got slammed amongst all the book reviews going, Mr. Newton shouldn't be, you know. But it's awesome. It's like he, they had this wonderful, tender, loving relationship. And yet he said, you know what? I don't want her to displace Christ. Um, anyway, so really interesting there. And he was exemplary. With Cooper for over 30 years, for Polly over 40 years um, in walking with them together. Final thing, and, and we see this all over his letters, Christ should be the center of friendships. Uh, listen to some of this, guys. The goal of friendship is to know Christ. He says, I trust, no, he's writing to somebody, right? I trust you will find the name and grace of Jesus more and more precious to you. His promise is more sweet, and your hope in them more abiding, and your sense of your own weakness and unworthiness daily increasing. Your persuasion of his all-sufficiency to guide, support, and comfort, more confirmed. You owe your growth in these respects in a great measure to his blessing upon those afflictions we has prepared for you and sanctified to you. May you praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that is to come. That's knowing Christ, right? Um, Share with you. Uh, uh, we'll do a postscript here in just a second, but um, it's not in the notes. But I'm, I'm thinking of it. Um, I got another pastor friend of his was losing his faculties, kind of coming to the end of ministry. Um, and uh, Cooper remembered something that he had read by the old Puritan Cotton Mather was the Puritan's name of a previous generation. And Mather wrote this: um, "My usefulness." was the last idol which the Lord had to remove from me. (sighs) Right? If God took away everything we thought of as our relationships, our job, our talents, our function, uh, our usefulness is the last idol that we cling to. And Mather said... God loves us enough that he might call us to even let go of that. Why? 
so that we'll lean on him alone. And Newton wrote to his friend in the ministry who was losing his faculties, losing his ability to be a pastor. And he said, you know what? God's kind even in removing our usefulness in that way. You know, when, when we walk alongside friends, it, it may be that we, we have to walk with a friend that loses another friend. And uh, I couldn't help but give you a couple of quotes here because, again, the perspective is in all this. Um, listen to this. Yes, madam, though every stream must fail, the fountain is still full and still flowing. Now listen to this. All the comfort you ever received in your dear friend was from the Lord, who is abundantly able to comfort you still. And he is gone but a little before you. May your faith anticipate the joyful and glorious meeting you will shortly have in a better world. Then your worship and converse together will be to unspeakable advantage, without imperfection, interruption, abatement, or end. Then all tears shall be wiped away, every cloud removed, and then you will see, listen to this, that all your concernments here below, the late affliction dispensation not accepted, meaning when you lost your friend, all your concernments here below were appointed and adjusted by infinite wisdom and infinite love. All right. Um, has this been helpful? Yeah. Different, non-traditional, but we need spiritual heroes, don't we? So if I have provoked you, and I hope I have, in wanting to get to know my spiritual hero, Mr. John Newton, let me recommend a couple of books, okay? If you want to just read about his life, and, and th this is a compelling biography. It's new. You can read this with your kids, your grandkids, Jonathan Aitken, uh, his book, Jonathan Newton, or John Newton, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace, published by Crossway, really, really good, very readable, short chapters. Um, if you're like, okay, so now, if, if you want to, so all these quotes that I gave you come from his letters. Newton never really wrote like a book of doctrine or a book on you know church growth or something like that. All these came from letters. So if you're like, man, I'd love to read some of these letters, it's so helpful, here's what you do. You pick up a book uh, edited by Josiah Bull, published by Banner of the Truth, called The Letters of John Newton. And um, it's a compilation of some of his best letters. And what's nice is uh, Josiah Bull gives you a little bibliography. So it's like, you know, who's Mrs. Smith? You know, who's Mr. Jones? And, and he'll tell you, here's a little bit of context. Here's what the occasion was. And then you, read, you can put it on your bedside and read it as a devotional after you read your Bible, and you will be blessed. That's how I got into Newton, was reading that letter. And then finally, if you, if you want to read something that kind of gives Newton's perspective on the Christian life, and, and this was similar, I looked at one slice of it for the dissertation. Uh, Tony Ranke, uh, many of you know that name. He, he does the Ask Pastor John podcast. He's the host there. Brilliant, godly, uh, young author. And uh, he wrote a book called Newton on the Christian Life. And uh, it is phenomenal. Uh, you will really appreciate that. Uh, Ranke does such a great job in that. So. All right, and, uh, and then if you really want to jump in the deep end of the pool, you can get the six-volume Works of John Newton by Banner of Truth. Actually, they, they just retypeset it into a four-volume edition that's easier to read uh, by Banner of Truth. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that those have, who have gone before us, that have spoke the Word of God to us, even through what they've written in history, and uh, we want to imitate their faith, as Paul said, that we would follow his example as they follow Christ. Uh, Lord, I thank you for Mr. Newton and, and the blessing he's been to my life and in so many others. And we pray that as we follow biblical commands to, to exemplify and follow and imitate 
men and women that have gone before us in church history, that you will help us to be more like Christ, that you will help us to be more godly friends, and that you will equip us to be more effective counselors. Again, pointing to the sufficiency of our great Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.